Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Here in New York, joining us, Greg Boodle, BNP Paribas, U.S. Head of Equity and Derivative Strategy, and he joins us now. Good morning to you, Greg. Good morning. Pretty muted price action, I've got to say, with the exception of Chinese equities, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But what's your explanation this morning as to why futures are up, but just a half of 1%? Yeah, I think the slightly lacklustre move from U.S. equities this morning, up just under half a percent, is a reflection on how far we've already travelled since the December lows against a backdrop that's really seen um, some deterioration in terms of equity fundamentals and some of the hard macro data. The move in China is stunning. Six percent on the CSI 300. It's pretty difficult on a morning like this morning to wake up and untangle what is trade and what has been driven by other factors and specifically China-specific factors. Can you unwrap that a little bit for us, Greg? Yeah, I think really it's kind of uh, this confluence of factors. So we see a weaker dollar, a more dovish Fed, um, the market starting to price in a resolution in terms of the trade tensions, and then uh, a more kind of credit-friendly, growth-friendly environment coming in China, the stimulus at the start of this year working its way through. Um, I think those things have all come together to make something of a perfect storm for China and EM equities relative to uh, developed market equities. So EM over DM, is that a this morning story or a longer-term story? What's your base case, Greg? We think it's a slightly longer-term story than that. It's something that we've been talking about for a while as the right trade to to um, play a resolution of the trade story. As I said, there's a kind of confluence of factors, not just trade, supporting the idea that EM could outperform developed markets. That's something that I think could run a little longer, although clearly that price action from China this morning is very aggressive. How much is underpinned by dividend increase use of cash back to shareholders? I mean, it's folded into a Washington talk and Democratic socialists that say buybacks are evil. I get all that. But just from a CFA standpoint, If it's a vector that's up, not like it was in January in 2020 hindsight, how much of that is underpinned by use of cash? Yeah, I think cash and balance sheet is something that is going to really support some parts of the U.S. equity market. I think that the buyback story, whether it's returns through dividends or buybacks, the the root of return in some ways doesn't matter. I think if you've got a very robust balance sheet, net cash on the balance sheet, then that's something that's kind of um, going to give you a more defensive profile if we see a growth slowdown. And returning some of that cash is going to support your earnings growth. I know you're not, Greg Buda, going to talk about individual companies, but our uh, reporter from Omaha... Uh, Catherine Shiglinski just mentioned the pile of cash Mr. Buffet has. There's a lot of other piles of cash out there. What's the, ca- I mean, a lot of people might, I mentioned Mario Gabelli, John, tweeting out on Newmont Barrack. I mean, a guy like Gabelli's like, why are you sitting on the cash? Do something. Yeah. Is that urgency there? I don't know if the urgency is there and some of the I volatility agree. that we've seen in equity markets over the last three to six months is maybe going to inject a little bit more of a note in caution rather than when we have a kind of more benign environment. But I think certainly if we do see the growth environment slowing, but not slowing too rapidly, um, corporates may look to try and offset some of that kind of organic slowdown by putting some of that cash to work. Well, there's one company that's selling and it's General Electric. And the story drops across the Bloomberg that General Electric has agreed to sell its biopharma 
business to Danaher for a total consideration including $21 billion okay. in cash as well as Danaher's assumption of certain pension liabilities. That just dropped it across the Bloomberg. General is, Electric up more than 6%. Yeah, but is that almost market. an inside transaction? I mean, Mr. Culp is ex-Danaher. Formerly of Danaher. Wow. I mean, I, I'm going to be honest. I'm totally not surprised by this. So here's the headline that comes but with it. GE that expects link? to use proceeds to cut leverage and strengthen balance sheet. Now, this is a very GE-specific story, but let yes. me get to the broader story that I think you can speak to, Greg. It's the belief that beyond GE, there's a lot of companies not in a similar position, but telling the same kind of story, that this is the year that we're going to cut back on debt, right-size the balance sheet. It's the year of the debt diet, in the words of some guests that I've spoken to. Do you believe it is? I think there's going to be differentiation between those who do have leverage on the balance sheet, see um, you know, the end of the cycle in sight, see growth slowing, and want to take measures to repair their balance sheet. But there are other corporates out there who have big piles of cash, um, who, if anything, will be looking to put the, that cash to work. So one of the things we've been talking about is looking at the differentiation between those who can do things like sustain buybacks, maybe even accelerate returns to shareholders, and those who are going to have to cut back. How many companies are in that position? Because the thing I worry about sitting here is central banks shifting towards an easing bias. But I just wonder how much corporates have already leveraged over the last couple of years, what difference it will make to adjust the supply and price of credit, and whether that will be enough to stimulate demand. Yeah, I mean, we have had this more dovish tone from the Fed, but we've been in an environment really for the past 10 years where there's been an awful lot of support coming from um, central banks. So I think clearly this has been one of the drivers that's taken the S&P back up from 2400 on Christmas Eve. Um, so I think the ability for there to be more liquidity-driven rally for the, a more dovish Fed to incrementally drive yeah. upside from here is much more challenging. I, I think perhaps one of the biggest risks for 2019 is policy impotence. It, just the very idea that these central banks try and do more, but the effectiveness of it isn't enough. And I just wonder whether right now we're experiencing that to some degree in China, uh, Greg, because the Chinese are doing a lot. It's supporting markets. I haven't seen it materially support the economy just yet. Yeah, so I think that's a very important point. You can get some knee-jerk reaction in terms of equities outperforming when you get stimulus, but really for that to drive a sustained rally, what you need to see is the, the stimulus find its way into the hard data. If you see the macro data improving, that's likely to drive the market higher. Greg, thank you so much. Thank Greg you, Buda Greg. With us, BNP Paribas. We speak to the vice president of Odd for Bloomberg Intelligence, Carolyn Oberhart, darkens the door. I'm going to cut to the chase away from all the mumbo jumbo. How can this be an arm's length transaction? Mr. Culp bleeds Danaher blue. He's working for GE. I know the board signed off on it and all that. you got to be kidding me. Uh, you know, about a year ago, Danaher wanted to buy it, and uh, uh, GE rebuffed them. Uh, he got, I mean, he, let's be fair, he got $21 billion, and he needs cash. That's more than you more thought? Than, I, I, it's actually a little less than I thought. I had okay. $24, $25 billion. Um, the peer group, which is Danaher, Thermo Fisher, um, right. in the life science business are 18, 19 right now. So um, the deal, you know, was good for Danaher as well as good for GE. GE has to balance. I mean, GE has to balance, I need money and I need it fast. And the positive in this is that they've been getting $2 billion, $3 billion from selling things. Was there a bidding on this? Did J&J come in here or, you know, name six I, other companies you know better than me? I... Not sure if there was a bid. I know that Danner was interested. You know, is interested this going to be it. questioned in the next week? I... 
I think people are so happy that they're getting that much money and that'll solve so all my radars up. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, no, I, former... I, I see your I see your point because yeah. it's it's they got the they got it below peer multiples. Uh, it's a growth business margins are are very good. Um, and but. GE's in a box. So what do you? Yes, they have to I balance. Mean, I need the money. What did you know? Dan do? Did it go down ten percent? If GE went up ten percent, the answer is no. No, no, because if they <clears> paid fifteen <throat> times for it, no. What's interesting, Karen, is not just the move in the stock, but the move in the debt as well. It's up three cents on the dollar, so we're up to ninety-two fifty on the GE Perpetual. It's a triple B credit. And they're using the money to right-size the balance sheet. How important is that? That's extremely important because uh, there was fear of a downgrade. Uh, they they need to get the debt down as quickly as possible. There wasn't a lot of large chunks left that they could sell. Um, and, you know, oil service is the only one they have left. That's a reasonable, reasonable size chunk. So this does solve the, you know, big chunk of the debt problem. It doesn't solve it completely. And I think we'll ease the fears about another downgrade. Yeah, so we trade at 92 cents on the dollar and there's been this big fear about another downgrade do you think this is sufficient or do they need to do more do they need to raise more capital Uh, you know uh, you know they've got to continue to raise capital but i think the emergency i would say the emergency uh might be over in the in the near term so you sell biopharma you keep healthcare. the healthcare ipo is not going to happen what's next what's the next unit that you're laser focused on I think healthcare will happen, but it won't happen right away. Interesting. He needs the cash flow. Um, this doesn't, uh, you know, uh, I don't think it aborts the um, option to sell healthcare, but he needs the cash flow. So right now, he's he can stop the bleeding with this sale, get the cash from healthcare to do other things, and eventually, I think he will get out. Are of there other suitors that could step in here in the next forty-eight hours and say, "Wait a minute"? That I think that's a possibility. Okay. I mean, we're so far from the GE of Schenectady, New York. You've mentioned before, Karen, aviation. Am I right? That's the crown jewel now. Yes, that's you know, uh, you know, they get rid of uh, healthcare, they get rid of oil service. It's 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 power, it's renewables, and it's aviation. Yeah. And aviation is a crown jewel. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say. I mean, yeah. basically, it's an airline engine company. It's yeah. running a power business because they can't figure out how to get rid of it. <laughs> That's, they're going to have to just shrink power as much as they can. That's not an option to sell right now. Now, I don't, you don't do buy, hold, sell. What's the stock at, John? Were the stock up a zillion percent? Were we up over 12? We're at just below 12. Just below 12. I mean, I don't need a target from you. I know that's impolite, but... I mean, does this have anything have legs to 40, or is it plus or minus five points? It's got to do a lot more work to do uh, okay. to, to run to anywhere we're near that. I mean, they've still got a big to get problem. In trouble. <laughs> I, I just, Bloomberg intelligence. I have said in the past, I'm a glass half full GE person, I don't want a price yeah. forecast, but I, you know, the stock was what six or seven. It's it's done like you know up forty percent, fifty. You know what 60%? GE is to America? It's what Deutsche Bank is to Europe. And the question that comes up with Deutsche Bank again and again and again is whether you can cut your way to growth. And it's a question that's asked about GE as well. Radically different company, of course, but the same situation. Can you cut your way to growth? I think they're trying to cut their way to stability. <laughs> and um, and, and when, once they can stabilize power, and there's some signs in order that that's happening, they can stop the bleeding there. They've got a growth engine. Well, I'm not playing on words, but it's 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 aviation. Yeah. And frankly, healthcare is 19% operating margins, and it'll be well, more like 15, 16 without this. Business, are they but. benefited by the death of the Airbus uh, 380? I mean, do they move a lot more engines on smaller planes? 
No, GE and uh, Pratt and Whitney are the big engine guys. Yeah. So yeah. So um, you know that plane goes, but there's others that. There's have a million other ones. In, yeah, I think, yeah. And with uh, with a lot going. Karen, thank you so much, Karen. Thanks, we'll Karen. Wandering by on Dan or GE, and you know, I I, I would say next forty eight hours we'll see. We went through the surveillance data bank and tried to find one of our guests that actually listened to all the speeches. And Did that you find Julia, one? Julia Coronado joins us. Of macro policy perspectives. Macro policy perspectives. What do these speeches mean, Julie, to a grizzled PhD pro like you? Do you actually listen to these speeches? Do you just look at the Bloomberg headlines or do you just ignore them? Well, actually, a number of the speakers were speaking at an event in New York, so I was able to attend that event and see the full glory of the Fed speakers in person. So um, it was uh, as you that was why we got such a deluge with yeah. this annual conference, the Booth Conference in Chicago, uh, the, mm-hmm, in New York. Exactly. Yeah, Raghun Rajan joining us tomorrow on Bloomberg Surveillance X Chicago and X uh, RBI in India with an important new book out as well. Give us a Fed update. It's you know we're marching to March, and then there's a March meeting. You know, I I know there's a press conference and all that, but is it a dead meeting as as Fed speak goes? Effectively, the March meeting is dead in policy terms because the Fed has hit the pause button. So we know that they're pretty much on hold for the first half of the year as they sort of gather the data and take yeah. the temperature on the economy. Most of the speakers that we heard from are looking forward to this evaluation of their policy toolkit and whether they should tweak their inflation targeting right. approach. Uh, and that's the hot topic of the day. I mean, I look, Julia, at the dot plot, which I haven't looked at folks, since Michael McKee stopped the press conference uh, last time around. And not only is the market call distant from the Fed call, but the market call has a vector going to lower rates out two yeah. years. To me, the slope of the market call has radically changed. Am I right on that? Um, yes, you are right. And I think that what we will see at the March meeting is another flattening of the dot plot and with the Fed moving closer to the market rather than the market moving closer to the Fed. But the Fed, this is where there's a a key difference between the market and the dot plot, and that is that the dot plot is the Fed's official communication. The Fed is never going to say, we're projecting failure, we're predicting a recession. The market can make that call. Um, And effectively, some people in the market believe, and in fact, the National Association of Business Economists survey just showed that the modal expectation is for a recession in uh, 2020. So that's what the market is at least many in the market are thinking, and that's why we have a, a bit of a rate cut priced in. Whether it's 2020 or 2021, they're always pushing out this call. There is always a recession call somewhere in the mix, Julia. What you mentioned earlier, I think, is really interesting. The prospect of a higher inflation target. Mohammed Al-Aryan running for Bloomberg Opinion um, today, and he wrote the following. Will the Fed be able to meet a higher inflation target if it already struggles to meet its current one on a consistent basis? What right. difference does it yeah. make, Julia? Well, I think that is probably the single biggest shortcoming of evaluating that approach is they don't even know whether it's feasible uh, to hit a higher inflation target or to even average at a slightly higher 
uh, run rate of inflation over a longer horizon. We we haven't been hitting the inflation target. Is that because inflation expectations have slipped lower and that's something that they can correct with their communication? Or are there inflationary processes, you know, deeper, more structural processes that hold back inflation and would sort of, you know, put the Fed's credibility at risk if they if they've raised the target at a time when inflation is structurally low. So that's one of the big questions that they're going to be grappling with as they do this evaluation. What do you make of this evaluation playing out as publicly as it currently is? Well, I think the idea in them doing that is to uh, emphasize that they understand they are a public institution, even though they do have independence, if they don't acknowledge and uh, respond to uh, public demands, they will lose that independence. They understand that more now than ever before. And so I think that the idea of having these town halls and these public conferences is to make sure that the public fully buys into any changes that are made. And it's a good thing. I mean, I think they're going to hear a variety of perspectives like the one you just <clears throat> mentioned, yeah. but they might not get as loudly as if they, you know, do it behind closed doors. Julia Coronado with us, Macro Policy Perspectives. This is a joy. We have waited and waited and waited to get the 272-page book of the year in business. This isn't economics. It's not investment or finance. It's like the behavior of business. We are thrilled to bring you Gene Case uh, and her book, Be Fearless. It has not only come out in a splash, but it's really come out to some immense acclaim as well. Just go out to Amazon and look at the acclaim and uh, it speaks for itself. We said to Gene Case, you can't come on until Lady Gaga talks about you at the Academy Awards. Of course, that's what happened last night. Are you wearing Alexander McQueen today, Jean? <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to channel Gaga. No, there was Gaga and your husband, Steve Case, of course, with Modest Internet. A claim goes, it's not about how many times you are knocked down. It's about how many times you get up and keep going. This is Gaga last night wearing McQueen at the end of the show. Gene Case, forget about the advantages of Gene Case and Steve Case. Give us one example of how you were knocked down years ago. Sure. Well, I tell the story in my new book, Be Fearless. You know, I was... um we, we had a, a large initiative at the Case Foundation where I run to bring clean water to sub-Saharan Africa in 10 countries. And when I launched it, I had President Clinton to my right and First Lady Laura Bush to my left. But as we started to execute the project on the ground in Africa, things weren't going so well. And it's a bit of a longer story, but after yeah. trying to course correct and make things right, we had to acknowledge the failure. And I did so very publicly by writing a blog, The Painful Acknowledgement of Coming Up Short. Well, There's a very public yeah. failure I had, and I like to tell that story because, you know, entrepreneurs can be a little more comfortable with failure, but in the world more broadly, people are stopped in their tracks and they think it's over. And part of the reason I wrote the book, Be Fearless, right. is, you know, to really tell the stories of well-known and less well-known success stories that are lined right. with failure along the, the way. What's so important here, and we have a surveillance dumpster where we throw in all the business books that don't have the interior visceral energy Be Fearless has. You talk about being normal and about avoiding normal. Let's start with that sweat condition right now. How do our listeners, how do our listeners' kids 
get away from normal? Sure. Well, of course, that's all a play on the words of the town I was born in, which was normal Illinois, as the youngest of four being raised by a single mom. And, you know, I add vignettes, but this is mostly a storytelling book about others. And the real message of it is that it's ordinary people who do extraordinary things. But to get to extraordinary, we have to get uncomfortable, get outside of normal. You know, I like to say nothing great comes from the comfort zone. And we did some research about six years ago, really to study the core qualities of successful entrepreneurs and innovators. How, how many times did really, they fail? How many times did they fail before they found success? Oh, in some cases, multiple times. You know, I like to talk about Oprah, who was told she just wasn't right for TV. And yet look at the media empire she has created. Steve Jobs fired from the very company he founded, which then enabled him to go back yeah. later and totally transform that company. So right. time and time again, you know, that chapter is called Fail in the Footsteps of Giants. Yeah. So it really is an important message well, that we have to get a little uncomfortable. We have to be bold and take some risks, but that it's really available to anyone to break right. through. Well, so what we'll do, Gene Case, is we'll bring in my colleague, Paul Sweeney, who saw Duke go down in flames a week and a half ago and find <laughs> resurrection here over the exactly. weekend, Paul. Gene, one of the principles in your book I found interesting was the concept of making the big bet. And that's something that I don't think is really as intuitive for you know most people, the more conservative. Why is it important to think about making that big bet? And do you have an example of somebody who's, who's done it and, and done it well? Sure. Well, you know, what I say is make a big bet and make history. It turns out what our research showed was that across geographies and across sectors, where transformational change happened is where people really start out with a big bet, not really drive for incremental change, but keep an eye on the prize. Now, of course, how you're going to get there is one step at a time. Um, but, you know, a big bet, I would say, is a great company, Warby Parker. You know, Fast Company has referred to them as the uh, they've won the most innovative company award from Fast Company. You know, those are just a couple of guys. One of them needed a pair of eyeglasses, you know, several years back and found out they were just they were in college. It was too expensive, too much of a hassle, and they said, hey, how about we try to think about selling some glasses online, which, of course, at that time, you can imagine what they were met with. No one's ever going to order a pair of glasses online. Well, fast forward the tape today, and not only are they being recognized as you know, the most innovative company, but more importantly, their model is so cool because you can order them online, you can get them brought to your home, they're affordable, but they have this one-for-one -one model, so when you buy a pair of glasses from them, uh, another person in the developing world gets a pair of glasses that couldn't afford it. So they've given away 4 million pairs of eyeglasses while they've become one of the hottest brands. That's thinking big, obviously. Um, Gene, you're chairman of the board of the National Geographic. Um, how does Be Fearless apply to the world of science and exploration? Yeah. Well, first of all, I know we talked about Gaga last night at the Oh, Oscars here we go. Yep, Free Solo won. I, I was watching last and night. National Geographic films. So we're very, very proud. <clears throat> How did that but happen? Look. How did that happen? How did that movie come? Let's make a movie about a guy in a cliff and he may die. But then how did that, you're chairman of the National Geographic. How did that Oscar happen? So I think it happened through an extraordinary uh, story and an extraordinary talent around it to bring that story to life. But it's emblematic of the fearlessness that has been in the National Geographic Society since its founding 131 years ago. Time and time again, the organization is willing to take risks, be out there on the front lines of the unknown, and Free Solo is a great example of that.
Gene, how about the, I think another concept that kind of goes along those lines is reach beyond your bubble. You know, I think, you know, a lot of us can probably say we're pretty comfortable in our bubble. Why should we reach outside of our bubble? Yeah, well, you know, I think we'd all love to stay in our comfort zone or our bubble if we could, but the fact of the matter is what success looks like is when people reach outside Mm -hmm. of their bubbles. And today in the world of finance, for instance, you know, what we're not so aware of are some growing trends in the nation, and that is where some of the newest startup activity of new companies is coming from, is from women and people of color, and yet the data is stark. Last year, just 2% of venture capital went to firms with a female founder, less than 1% of firms with an African-American founder. But more stunning than that, 75% of venture capital went to just three places, California, Massachusetts, and New York. So a state like Florida, the third largest in the nation, got 2% of venture capital. So we've really got to start focusing on making sure there isn't this consolidation of capital to a few places, but really make an extra effort to get out there, reach beyond our bubble, and find the new classes of entrepreneurs who are driving the future. Chairman of National Geographic, as Paul Sweeney said, all of us grew up with yards of National Geographic saved by parents and grandparents. Tell me the National Geographic magazine that Susan Goldberg and you, it'll never go away, right? I really hope not. You know, we love our National Geographic magazine. We treasure it as much as those who've been reading it for years and years. We do have mm-hmm. a digital form of the magazine on iPad, on the iPad, which is yeah. super cool because we can put video assets and, you know, links right. in there that can take you even further. But we love the magazine oh. as well and our channels and our digital footprint. You know, just last week, we passed 100 million Instagram followers. Wow. The first brand in the world to do that. Very cool. That's a, that's a huge Huge number, folks, way different than any Facebook calculation. Gene Case, thank you so much. The book is Be Fearless, folks. I really can't say enough about it. This book came out. It made a modest splash, Gene Case and all that. But it has gathered momentum and steam through 2018 and into 2019. Five principles for a life of breakthroughs and purpose. And as Paul Sweeney said, it's just about courage. It's just about what you need to do to try to move things forward for you and your family as well. Be fearless, Gene Case. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.